Hi, I'm Tiffany Verga, and welcome to the next page. The UN Library and Archives Geneva podcast designed to advance the conversation on multilateralism. This is the final episode in our green month of November in support of COP26. We've had a pretty busy month here at the UN Library and Archives, dedicating our episodes to the important conversations on climate. If you've been listening, you would have heard from Garvita Gulhadi on water conservation, or Dr. Deborah Roberts on the intersect between climate science and policy. But today, we're taking you back to what inspired these three episodes, COP26. The COP is a mixture of negotiations, public discussions, stalls, and protests on the streets. There are a myriad of people from government officials to activists from every corner of the world, and they're coming together to have their voices heard in what's been dubbed by world leaders as the last best hope we have to save the planet. One of these notable groups making their voice and concerns known has been the youth. Your voice is powerful, it matters, and it can shape history. That's Holly Crockford, the co-founder of Climate Force and Foundations for Tomorrow. She was one of the young Australians on the ground in Glasgow during the two weeks of the conference. In this episode recorded on the final day of COP, we talk about what Holly hopes she'll see happen in the coming months, what type of climate leadership we need amongst all the blah blah blah, and whether COP26 with its hybrid format during the pandemic really offered accessibility to young people. Let's take a listen. Welcome to the podcast, Holly. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. To kick things off, it's the final day of COP today. How are you feeling? Thanks so much for having me on board, Tiff. How am I feeling? I am feeling a mixture of excitement that we may finally get across the line. I'm feeling an element of pride in terms of the what I have seen be done collectively and then also by organisations work, some things that we've pushed across the line. And I'm also, I think, nervousness that the final document that is prepared and has the stamp and seal of the UN won't be a document that we need to forge a future that is safe and sustainable for everyone. Touching on that final document, actually, everyone is expecting a report or agreement to be released later tonight. What are you hoping to see from it? Yes, I would like to see ambition ratcheted up across the board, but I suppose two main areas that I would really hope to see that in. First one is essentially reparations pledged to developing countries from developed nations. I think the initial $100 billion pledged is just a handshake. To be very clear, we need much more money than that to fund the transition. And where there has been a historical approach of almost being territorially around it, of, you know, you do this, I did that, where it really is is our collective problem. And then the second area I'd really like to see market progress in is Article 6, which is the carbon market. I think if we have standardization and transparency, we can actually unlock all of the funds that we've seen pledged. And I think that will accelerate the transition in a way that we really need to see, given the clock is very much ticking. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what is produced by the end of the day. And I'm sure a lot of people listening will be interested to see what action COP will bring and what their own countries will be implementing from where they're listening from. 
Just so our listeners can have a little bit of a better understanding of who you are, Holly, and what your passions are, could you share with our audience more about yourself and what the work you do with Climate Force entails? Absolutely. So I'm co-founder of Climate Force and we actually co-founded it off the back of the South Pole Energy Challenge, which was the first ever Antarctic expedition powered on renewable energy. It's very exciting. NASA made a sled, Shell made biofuels. And at the end of it, I said to my co-founder, we need to do something with this. Uh, So we started, it's in essence, a carbon sequestration not for profit, but it really works on using their economics to get the cost curve down to make sequestration more effective so we can actually do more sequestration over the long term. So my role in that and sort of the projects or work streams that I oversee, the first one is sequestering the carbon. So we restore unproductive agricultural land uh, with trees and indigenous species to ensure that it's done in a way that is uh, in line with the natural habitat. And the second one is we reduce the cost curve of these nature-based solutions through technology. So that would be uh, weeding is a very cost-intensive part of tree planting. It's not very sexy, but it is. So we've started to design a robot that actually automates the weeding process. So then we don't have the labor costs associated with it. And then finally, from the carbon credits that are generated through those nature-based solutions and that tree planting, we actually reinvest those funds into hard-to-abate technology such as green steel, green concrete. Uh, And I think that's really important because we'll get to this stage in the energy transition where those are really costly, but we will need to move the needle on them. Wow. It's definitely very fascinating, the work that you're doing, especially providing solutions to some of these more labour-intensive, less sexy tasks, as you phrased. I'm curious, though, what first drew you into climate work? Was there a moment or anything that really sparked that interest for you? Yeah, I think the first climate-related memory I have was going to a protest with my family. I think I was eight. And I just, the thing that I remember about it is we want to wear orange uh, for global warming, which and I was the first experience I learned. Orange does not suit me, like my colour tone, but I wore it anyway. <laughs> uh, and it was raining. I think I was just uh, enwrapped with the thousands of people in the streets of Brisbane City, despite the rain, uh, chanting. I think that was my first memory. And then I think the memory that really cemented me sort of saying, okay, I want my life to move the needle on this somehow, was I remember Cyclone Pam, which was a while ago now. And I remember thinking about the devastation and I asked a teacher at the time, I said, like, why is this happening? And they explained to me sort of like the science behind it. And that was where I first took action. So I sort of founded a local Leo's group, which is the Junior Lions, to raise funds to donate to Cyclone Pam. And I think that was sort of like my first foray into the climate action space. <laughs> Well, I think I can speak on behalf of a lot of people in saying that I'm glad you got above orange as a colour and that it didn't set back your climate journey too much. But moving on to Glasgow at the moment, for our listeners, this episode will be airing post the conference ending. So this all may seem a little bit of a distant memory, but at the moment there really is this feeling that the world's eyes are currently on Glasgow with COP26 being one of the most anticipated climate gatherings since Paris 2015. 
You're currently fortunate to be there on the ground, surrounded by world leaders, delegates and parties from over 200 countries, and they're all being put to the test to address the changes needed to reach net zero emissions by 2050. Holly, what's it been like in Glasgow so far, and what have been your main takeaways from the last two weeks? Mm, it's been incredibly uh, exciting uh, experience. I think the you know hope and ambition air is almost palpable. I remember sort of working, walking to the conference for the first day and seeing that. I think there is a greater sense of urgency uh, than I expected, which is really really good to see. And that's partly due to this COP being a very pivotal COP. You know, it's the first one, uh, the first five year mark since the Paris Agreement was signed. So they're meant to be ratcheting up ambition. I think. Everyone is very cognizant of that when they go into the negotiating rooms or even the side event discussions that they're having. Uh, main takeaways, I think we have seen the negotiators really try and tackle some of the more tricky parts of the agreement that were left open from the Paris Agreement, such as Article 6, which is about carbon markets. And I think we hopefully will see some progress on that. I don't know if it will be enough. Another big theme is the commitment of developed nations to underdeveloped nations in terms of providing fiscal support. Um, they have come on board with the 100 million, but I would like to say that 100 million is not enough, uh, and we need to see at least 10 times that because really no less will do at this point in time. But I would say. Overall, it's probably been an optimistic cop, and that's probably due to the corporate commitment. We've seen the private sector really try and move the needle and pledge an amazing amount of funds. And if we find an effective allocation of those, I think we can see the acceleration, which we really, really need because uh, the clock definitely is ticking on this issue. Yeah, I think it's really interesting you bring up that corporate element because, you know, the whole discussion recently has been that if we ever want to achieve these goals, that we need everyone involved, including corporations, who haven't always been positive contributors towards net emissions. But I think something that definitely needs to be happening regardless of how people feel about it. Looking forward, though, has anything surprised you about this COP? Anything you weren't expecting? This is the first COP that I've attended, but I have followed all others closely. I think um, surprising has been around loss and damage. I think we've seen some really good movement there, and I didn't expect uh, to see that movement. Uh, but I think it's one of those points where we're negotiating the finer details of ambition, but we're almost ignoring the science. And so I think it's great in terms of the progress that is made relative to where we were, but I still don't think it's enough progress for where we need to be, given what the science is telling us. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a good thing that we are seeing some of that movement. So, as I mentioned, this COP has been really anticipated partly because countries didn't want to agree in a purely virtual context, but also because of the pandemic and the restrictions that's brought to negotiating and making agreements. Which leads me on to the next question, because there has been some criticism of this conference not being accessible to all due to vaccinations, flights and last minute costs as borders open, which has led to concerns about this conference not being as accessible from the perspective of youth. Has, in your opinion, this helped or harmed youth access to engaging in this forum? 
I think the pandemic has brought additional costs into attending conference um, with flights and being able to leave the country. And I would say that that has definitely harmed it from a youth perspective. I'd like to note that I'm very privileged to come from a country that has free uh, and available vaccines. I know not everyone has that. And I think the vaccination requirement has definitely hindered representation given the current vaccine inequity that is at play across the global landscape. Uh, I'm very cognizant of that, though, when I'm you know, interacting in this cough or giving talks. So first, I'm cognizant to bring the perspectives of my peers from back home to the table. One example of that is as part of Foundations for Tomorrow, we did a national consultation of over 10,000 youth responses wow. to get their opinions on questions. And every day before I go in, I read I read the notes and the results from that survey and to make sure that I'm actually really representing that perspective. And then the other point is to try and increase the equity is to bring the perspectives of COP back to youth. Uh, AFIS, the working group, has done a lot of work in that space, including a YouTube channel, various talks, you know, unpacking all the nuances of the conference to really try and increase that accessibility. But I would say looking forward in the future, it's definitely a role in all governments to not only have equitable representation from youth, but also within the youth paradigm particularly first nations representatives we need definitely more of that we definitely always do need more and i and i hope that this cop does bring more indigenous involvement in the decisions that we're ultimately making because they do have such a vast knowledge base and experience with the land that we can definitely learn from moving forward what type of leadership do you think that we need at cop you know, just before the conference began, Greta was quoted saying that we had a lot of blah, blah, blah and that not a lot of the action was actually happening. So what leadership do we need so that we don't just talk about these commitments but actual actions? And as a young person, what does leadership mean to you? Mm. I think, in essence, we need bold, evidence-based political leadership uh, to reach consensus on all the issues that are at the negotiating table particularly because I think it's the 80-20 rule when it comes to negotiations in that 80% of the decision-making actually gets done in the 20% of the time. So we're really in that 20% window at this stage in time. And we really don't have time for countries to walk away from the table at this COP. We can't afford it. I'd also think that from a political standpoint, we need our leaders to be courageous. Uh, and to show, frankly, willpower to look beyond the next election cycle to the next generation and the future that they're shaping for them. And I think measurement can be a really useful tool here and that if we provide a yardstick of how we're progressing, then it can give a framework for young people like myself to hold leaders to account, which is really, really important because the vote is the incentive structure that they respond to, as cynical as it sounds. Uh, And as a young person, I think leadership means aspiration and accountability. And, you know, we need to aspire to amplify the voices of all of our peers to hold leaders to account. Uh, And I think you do need that aspiration in order to stay optimistic because with an issue as large and nebulous as climate change, we do need optimism to keep doing the work that we're doing. 
A little bit of a cheeky additional question I'm posing for you, but you're a young leader in the climate space at the moment in Glasgow, and there are a lot of other young leaders around you at the moment. Has there been any takeaways or learning points that you've been able to gain from seeing and meeting these other people similar to you in action at Glasgow? I have learned so much from connecting with other young leaders. It's probably been one of my favourite parts of this COP. I think the notion of fearlessness and almost saying things without regrets or without holding back has been an underlying trend. It's been a really empowering one. Uh, I think, you know, almost as a young woman, I wasn't always taught to speak up. And through connecting with them, I have noticed that I've started to speak up more and say my mind and to say that is what is needed and almost required from us. And I think it's something I'm looking forward to engaging more when I come back to Australia is helping other young women in the space speak up and speak your mind because we really need it. So powerful. It's very exciting. And I think looking forward at this generation, our generation not afraid to rise up and amplify their voices provides a lot of hope for the future. So final question of this episode. As I said, that this episode will be airing after the conference finishes. So if there was one thing that you'd like listeners to remember after the conference, once COP26 is done, what would it be? So I'd like to say two things. The first one is to those audience members who are leaders. I would like to say, reflect on the legacy that you want to forge and ask yourself, do you want to be remembered for towing the party line or do you want to be remembered for ambitious leadership that protected the interests of future generations whose lives and livelihoods now hang in the balance? And to young people and all other listeners out there, I would like to say that your voice is powerful, it matters, and it can shape history. You know, you can vote with the ballot box, your wallet, and your voice every day, and that will make a change. And if you ever are feeling overwhelmed by the scale of the issue of climate change and feel like your voice doesn't matter... I like to reflect on a quote from the Dalai Lama, which is, if you ever feel that you are too small to make a difference, remember the impact a mosquito has in a room while you're trying to sleep. And I think we can all be little mosquitoes here and make a meaningful change together. What a wonderful note to end on. Thank you so much, Holly, for joining us and sharing your insights with our audience today. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed that conversation with Holly Crockford as the final episode in our COP series. Don't forget to listen back to our last two episodes on water conservation and the intersect between science and policy. If you love this episode of the Next Page podcast, don't forget to subscribe, rate, leave us a review, or find us at UNOG Library on Twitter and UN Library and Archives Geneva on Facebook. We'll be back to our regular schedule with our next episode out in two weeks. We hope to see you then.